0: This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and we're going to start our program today talking about a program provided by Lutheran Social Services of North Dakota, it is Youth Court. And with me is uh, Joel Fries. He's the program director for the Restorative Justice Program for North Dakota for Lutheran Social Services. We'll talk a bit about that. And Laura Pipkin is the coordinator for Lutheran Social Services Youth Court. Thank you both for being here.
1: Yes, Thank thanks you. for having us.
0: Uh, Joel, just give us the restorative justice, Pracy. What, what is it?
1: Well, first, you know, Lutheran Social Services is a a statewide uh, not-for-profit agency providing a lot of different services across the entire state. Restorative Justice is one of those statewide um, programs. And one of our primary functions that we do is victim-offender conferencing for juvenile offenders and those who are the victims of those crimes. Um, And also some adult work that we do, and we do a few school-based programs with restorative justice um, to address bullying behavior um, in Bismarck um, and Grand Forks. And so Youth Court is one of the components of the entire restorative justice program. And Youth Court is one of um, the programs at Lutheran Social Services that is only offered um, as of right now in the Fargo area.
0: Laurel, how does Youth Court work?
2: Um, we work with first-time offenders, and they are diverted to our program from juvenile court And the way that it works is we have those first-time offenders sit down and have a court hearing in front of their peers and their peers are volunteers who um, act as courtroom personnel and run the entire courtroom process. So these first time offenders get to tell their story in front of the peers and their peers then get to decide in what ways that person can repair the harm that's been caused from their offense.
0: And who are the peers?
2: They are local youth. Um, They're between 13 to 18 years old, as long as they're still in high school. And um, they all have to go through an orientation process and be approved to be a jury member, as well as get um, letters of recommendation from um, non-family members. So they, I mean, we have volunteers from the Fargo area. We have a few from Moorhead-Dilworth area, um, from outside Fargo, Kindred, Castleton, Hillsboro. So Any young person that wants to volunteer is eligible to volunteer for Youth Court.
0: How long is the commitment?
2: It is – Youth Court runs year-round. So we are pretty flexible with our volunteer schedules, knowing that they're in sports or theater and going on vacation in the summer. So um, we ask that they try to commit to two times a month, but we are definitely flexible with that.
1: Joel, what is
0: Lutheran Social Services' role?
1: Lutheran Social Services um, is the operating agency for the program – Youth court has been around since 1999, and was created out of a request from the Cass County Juvenile Crime Enforcement Coalition. And at that time, back in 99, they had selected Lutheran Social Services to be the agency that operates this program, and we still operate it, you know, to this day. Uh,
0: Laurel, what level of offenses can be handled in a court like this?
2: We typically handle misdemeanor, nonviolent offenses and we typically see anything from a minor in possession and consumption of, of alcohol um, to shoplifting to disturbance of a public school or disorderly conduct offenses um, whatever juvenile courts, who we have a really great working relationship with um, we get the opportunity to work with really great staff over there whatever they feel like would be appropriate to come to our program they can send over so we do see some simple assaults or fights that do happen but um, nothing to the severity of anything with a weapon or anything.
0: There is Sort of an adjudication uh, phase that happens before they get to youth court, though. Who's sending them over? Is this the county prosecutor? Is this a a judge who's doing that?
2: Um, That is juvenile court. They have a um, process that they basically go through um, and where they filter through those and decide who comes to us. So they don't actually go into juvenile court at all. They, the first stop they have is with me and with Youth Court.
0: So an, an offender might look at this as a a, a better opportunity <laughs> than, we,
2: than going to court. Yes,
1: <laughs> it, it generally is a, a better opportunity for them. So all the youth who are coming through Youth Court are non adjudicated. They are, you know, someplace a police report and a police report is being written for this youth for a crime they committed. That report goes to Juvenile Court. Juvenile court has the discretion. You know, Maybe they will look at factors as age, their age, maybe the type of offense. Maybe looking, has this is this the first offense that this youth has committed? And they have their set of criteria and then can divert that offender to go through the youth court program. And we want to do our best with keeping youth out of the court system, um, You know, if at all possible. The court, some youth have to be involved in the court system, you know, for the type of offenses they commit. But if at all possible, you know, to have them go through a diversion program like this so that they don't get labeled as an offender, you know, and they can be held accountable for their actions.
0: So are we talking about, like, substance abuse offenses, uh, graffiti, uh, you know, bullying, that kind of thing?
2: Yep, yep. Yes,
1: all three.
0: Who presides over the court?
2: Um, Like I said, our volunteers, it is 100% run by them. So we typically have me or another adult volunteer also in the courtroom who is just there to kind of monitor the case. But um, the kids, the the volunteers, they have 100% of say what happens with the case. So they act as judge, clerk, bailiff, and jury members and do everything.
0: Would this be the kind of the youth tribunal model then? Because I understand there are different models for this kind of court. There's adult judge, youth judge, peer jury, and youth tribunal.
2: We are a peer jury model. Okay. So all of our peers, um, all of the, the peers that are in the courtroom, they um, all get to ask questions of the offender, and they all have the say in the case. So typically when you think of a courtroom, you think of like lawyers being up and fighting back and forth. But we have um, the, the person who committed the offense on one side of the courtroom and all the volunteers on the other, and all of the jury members, the judge, they all get to ask questions and be a part of the process.
0: And the decisions are binding?
2: Mm-hmm. We, um, we write up a dis- disposition agreement with that person.
0: Not a verdict, but a disposition. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: And that is their assignments that they have to do in order to successfully complete youth court.
0: Well, give me some typical dispositions.
2: We, it's, it's anything to hold that person accountable for their behavior, helping them learn from this offense, and um, helping them repair the harm with those people that have been affected. So it can be anything from an educational class um, to help them understand in depth about how their offense really impacts people. They can ask them to do written apologies to people. They can ask them to serve jury duty and get to see other people's cases and give feedback on those cases, Um, community service, volunteer work, anything that the jury feels like is beneficial for that person.
0: Uh, Just so I'm clear on this, though, this uh, youthful offender gets to youth court by essentially agreeing that, you know, I'm guilty. Isn't that true? Correct. Correct.
1: In, in our literature for the program, it says for youth who have admitted, um, you know, their guilt in the situation. Um, and so, so
0: the court isn't actually determining their guilt. It's determining the best disposition, uh, the best restorative justice program, I exactly.
1: guess. Exactly. Yes. And we are really fortunate to have a great juvenile court system, you know, in Fargo and across the state that are, you know, that they are identifying these youth who can benefit from these type of services. Um, and the other thing I was gonna add um, about something that we mentioned. So say for example, a youth comes to the program um, and they get their disposition, about 95% of the youth complete their disposition with the youth court system. Um, say that they do not complete, that youth would then get referred back to juvenile court for further action. Hmm. So there would be other consequences for a youth if they don't complete the program. But fortunately, we have a very high rate that do complete successfully.
0: Well, I'm thinking of this scene where you've got the uh, offender on one side of the room and the peer group on the other side of the room and the conversation that ensues. And I'm wondering, Does that offender ever kind of beat the rap? Does the conversation actually ever accrue to the benefit of the offender?
2: I think a lot, lots of times it may, that it really gives that offender an opportunity to tell their story to the jury, not just, here's the police report of what happened. It's, this is what happened that day. This is how I'm feeling about it. And the jury members ask those questions to see how accountable they are. So they are definitely empathetic towards that person. And have, And sometimes they were on that side of the courtroom themselves, so they are definitely empathetic and know what that person's going through.
0: What are the advantages for the defendant? Let's just lay them out. For the, for the offender.
1: For, yep. Some of the benefits um, are for them to take accountability for what they did. You know, a lot of youth that we work with can admit that what they did was probably a dumb thing at the time. (laughs) Now that a month has passed, now they can admit to that. And this process gives them kind of like a formal opportunity to make amends for what they did. You know, not that they have to go on their entire life and feel like a bad person because they committed this offense at 12 years old. So it provides them an avenue to, you know, maybe they do need to write an apology letter to somebody. Maybe they need to do, you know, education classes. Um, And I I think we've touched on this already, but youth court is meant to be very educational so that, that this is not seen as just a punishment, for this thing you've done but that it's an education it's an opportunity for education so you can educate yourself as a youth and hopefully they'll pass this on to their friends you know so for that way and another benefit of course is that it keeps them out of the formal court system so they are not being entered into the the formal court system as as they could be they don't have a record Essentially, they do not have a record.
0: I'm speaking with Joel Fries. He's the director of the Restorative Justice Program for North Dakota's Lutheran Social Services. And uh, Laurel Pipkin is coordinator of the Lutheran Social Services Youth Court. Where is the physical court, Laurel?
2: We are very lucky. Um, The North Dakota State University Criminal Justice and Public Policy Building has in kind allowed us to use two of their classrooms to run our court hearings.
0: How busy is the court?
2: Um, We have had a very good year. Um, We've had a lot of referrals to our program, not that there are more young people out there committing offenses, but that um, juvenile court is utilizing our services more and keeping more kids out of the court system. So um, we stay pretty busy. We run two courtrooms and typically have five or six cases a night, or uh, every once a week, I'm sorry.
0: How long does a case take?
2: Typically about 30 minutes.
0: From start to finish to disposition. And how are the dispositions uh, arrived at?
2: The jurors have a conversation amongst themselves, and they really go through, you know, what do we need to have this person get out of this process? How can we help them learn from this? And who do we need to have them repair harm with from what we're hearing from this? So they have that conversation within themselves. They typically have to vote and argue a little bit back and forth for their points, but that's how they come up with it.
0: Have you ever had a disposition recommendation that you thought was overly harsh?
2: Yes. But I do not get to have an opinion on it. And I just, as long as they can back up their opinion, then I'm okay with it.
1: Are spectators allowed at these uh, events? We hold it to a minimum. We actually get asked that a lot, you know, for different people to um, observe it. But out of the confidentiality and, you know, respect the clients who are going through it, it's not that we just have an open door where anybody can observe it. But we do work with interns, you know, from the local universities. So sometimes they will help volunteer for the program and observe it. Um, And in certain situations, yes, it is appropriate to have, you know, Outsiders in it, and you know, to give you an exact number, Laurel, you will have this. But was it 180 that went through the program?
2: 181. Yeah,
1: 181 calendar. in our last calendar year went through the were referred to the program. So it's a fairly large amount of youth that access the services every year.
0: So you've got a lot of graduates of Youth Court. Yes, yes, yes. By now, how, mm-hmm. how many years has it been going in Fargo in 1999? Since, since 1999. All right. Uh, how aware are students of Youth Court?
2: We try to make them aware of it um, by going out and giving presentations about Youth Court, by being visible at um, picnics that we have in this area. We also – First Link is a great resource for us. They um, post our volunteer opportunities, so that's another way that people find out about the program. Unfortunately, a lot of people do find out once um, they have gotten into trouble, but – But typically when we're going out and and recruiting for volunteers and stuff like that, those are the typical paths that we take.
1: And Laurel does a good job with presenting to some of the local high schools and different classes, Um, you know, looking for youth who might be interested someday in a law career. Um, Maybe they want to be an attorney someday or they want to be in law enforcement. So it provides them great experience at a really young age to get involved. With a program like this
0: is youth court now at sort of capacity i mean you 've got this relationship with the uh, the juvenile courts, for example uh, are, are you at uh, what the need is, or could it grow considerably
1: it, it can grow actually. we are at somewhat of a capacity because one hundred and eighty is um, is quite a few youth to, to go through the program. We are fortunate that as of the past few years, we have funding through um, the United Way of Casclay in in our area, which we are very appreciative about, and that funding allows us potentially to access youth on the Moorhead side also, which up until the United Way funding we were solely funded from North Dakota revenue sources. You know, so now we are looking at being open a little more to expanding to to Moorhead youth also.
0: So that could uh, boost your business a bit.
1: How much does this cost uh, Lutheran Social Services? Our, our budget is very low. You know, I mean, it's, it's under uh, $50,000 a year is what the total budget would be. So Laurel does, um, does a lot of great work for us and sees a lot of youth and operates a pretty big program for a pretty minimal cost. Laurel, so. do you ever come across uh,
0: graduates who've been had their disposition dealt with and uh, maybe wanted to chat with you or talk to you about the court?
2: Um, yeah, and we always do an exit meeting after they've come mm-hmm. to the court and they've completed their assignments, so um we do I do talk to a few people or people might call me ask questions about criminal justice-related things or about the court system or something like that. But um, a lot of people, I think, after they see me, they don't want to see me. If I'm in a store or something, they kind of run the other way.
0: (laughs) Well, Joel, you mentioned that about 95 percent of these dispositions are are handled successfully Mm -hmm. and and everybody goes on their way, but 5 percent aren't. Now, what are those 5 percent like?
1: Yeah. Laurel, I might defer this question to you, uh, Laurel's a little more familiar with. The no, that's fine. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you mean like their personality, or what? well,
0: I mean, uh, what kind of person just doesn't do it? Uh, mm-hmm. Is that person going back to juvenile court and prefers that process?
2: Um, not typically. I mean, it might be somebody that um, maybe is not taking it as seriously as they should, or somebody that um, that that might want to work with juvenile court, or can you be brought back that. into youth court? um you You can, but we typically don't do that. We like to let them know that this is you know your, your one chance to really learn from this experience. so um, if, if juvenile court wanted them to come back through youth court, we would definitely be okay with that. but they they have a good heads up that this is their one chance to to take advantage of this opportunity.
0: Have you mm-hmm. ever had a case where a, an offender who went through that disposition came back and applied to be a, a one of those pure group members? Yes. Yes.
2: Some of the best volunteers that we have, not that my just normal volunteers aren't wonderful, but we have people who are super interested in volunteering for youth court afterwards, or they were assigned jury duty and they continue to serve jury duty till this day. And they are some of the best volunteers. And it's great that they've taken advantage of this positive peer influence and they're on that side of being a positive peer influence also.
0: Well, you mentioned the educational goal of this. And uh, uh, are there encouraging signs of uh, outcomes in, in education for people who've gone through this process and kind of got on the straight and narrow?
2: Yeah, and Joel, I'll refer this back to you because we um, we do measure a few things, and so he can talk about that.
1: Yeah, we do measure quite a few things. Um, a lot of youth get um, referred out to maybe take an education um, type of class, maybe another agency, um, a maybe a class that we don't provide at Lutheran Social Services, some of the data that we collect is done by like a satisfaction survey, you know, that the family member or the youth will complete. And some of that, you know, one of our questions is, did they learn something in youth court that would prevent something like this from happening again? And almost close to 100% of youth will say yes to that, that, By going through this process of youth court, the education component of it, they're less likely to get involved in in criminal behavior. Some of the youth we work with, you know, might have committed a crime that they did not know. You know, might have done an act that they did not know was a crime necessarily. And not that that excuses that, you know, but this is an education way to understand that. You know, spray painting on someone else's property is a crime, you know, and, and figuring out why is that a crime because it's somebody else's property. So sometimes you're having these these conversations with young youth who are realizing this, you know, for the first time.
0: Well, the uh, World Wide Web is full of information yes. about all kinds of things. Where can our listeners find information about Lutheran Social Services Youth Court Program?
1: Our agency has a really great website. It's www.lss. And there are links on there for both restorative justice and, and the youth court program. And if anybody would be interested in um, having their, You know, as a youth or if you're a parent listening to this, if you're interested in having your child um, volunteer, there are applications on there that could be filled out and submitted to us.
0: Very good. Thank you very much. Joel Fries is Program Director for the Restorative Justice Program for North Dakota's Lutheran Social Services Organization and Laurel Pipkin is Coordinator for Lutheran Social Services Youth Court. Thank you very much. More in a moment.
3: It's a night of jazz on Prairie Public. Following the rebroadcast of Hear It Now, we kick it off with Friday Night Swing with Lloyd Anderson. Then at 9 Central, Bob Studebaker hosts as we present both classic jazz from the legends of American music and new jazz from emerging artists. At 11 Central, it's the Jazz Junket with Ryan Schweitzer, followed at midnight by Jim Wilkie's Jazz After Hours. That's all right here, statewide, on Prairie Public.
0: This is here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. In the background, Blue Note Sessions featuring Nigel Kennedy on electric violin little jazz note for your afternoon delight. Well, tonight on the Prairie Public Television Service, Matt O'Lean hosts Prairie Pulse and visits with UND engineering professor George Bible. We've had Bible on a couple of times. He's the author of two books on transportation disasters, Beyond the Black Box, The Forensics of Airplane Crashes, and Trainwreck, The Forensics of Rail Disasters. But you can see him this evening, and here's an excerpt from this evening's show.
4: I'd like to think my books are uh, extremely educational. That's kind of the whole point of the book, to uh, be a science book that uh, tells stories or a story book that uh, teaches some science. So I very much use a lot of this material in my classes.
3: That's what I was noticing when I read Trainwreck. It's interesting, but it's readable too. You, you know, it, it's, it's, it's educational, but it's a good read as well. Is that kind of your intention to make it?
4: Yeah, that's my yeah. shtick, uh, for example, uh, All physics classes uh, study acceleration on a ramp and uh, nobody bothers to figure out what uh, that connects to. That's a runaway train that still happens today occasionally. Not very often, but it does happen.
3: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about your your airplane book. That was your first book of the two. Uh, When did you write that? A lot of research, I assume, went into that.
4: Yes, it's uh, been out about five years, and uh, it was adopted by uh, Boeing into a developed in a one-day training session, which I kind of c- consider a career highlight to get Boeing to endorse me and my book. In fact, uh, some Boeing managers wanted all their engineers to attend the seminar to remind them how easy it is to crash an airplane, but unfortunately, they real crash investigators at Boeing thought otherwise. But uh, that was uh, exciting for me. also had a op-ed piece in the New York Times uh, about uh, airplane crashes and they titled it Listen Up and Fly Right.
0: (laughs) That's George Bible. He's author of a couple of books uh, about uh, forensic engineering. Also on Prey Pulse, a feature on Rosemaling artist Joan Honnell of Roseau.
5: A lady taught a community class in Rosemaling and my husband said, "You, you should really go to this. You might have fun you know, just learning a few extra things. And when I got home that night, I was so excited, I couldn't sleep. So I had kind of a sleepless night, but it was a fun one because I realized how much I really loved what I was doing. It started, I think, becoming really popular in the 1970s and a whole lot of people discovered mauling again, even in Norway. But now I've found that it's kind of dying out a little bit. It's not as popular as it, as it was. I love rose mauling. I love the people I meet. I love rose mauling for other people, and I especially enjoy when they love what I've made for them. And that's part of the upside of being a rose mauler.
0: You can see Joan Honnell at work creating her beautiful designs this evening at 7.30 on the Prairie Pulse television show. And also the interview with George Bible as he discusses plane and rail disasters, some of which were right here in North Dakota. Again, that's statewide on the Prairie Public Television Network at 7.30. Now the news. This is here at Now on Prairie Public, and it's Friday, so it's time to link the Fargo and Bismarck studios and invite Dave Thompson to... I guess raise our awareness about some of the news that's been in the headlines this week and some that's around the corner coming up next week because we've got crossover next week mm-hmm. in the we legislature. Do. We do. Uh, we heard a bit about the property tax discussion, and there are lots of tax discussions that are likely when you've got the kind of surplus the state has. Absolutely. Bring us up to date a bit, Dave. Uh, get this all in order for us.
6: Well, okay, the Senate has now passed its version of property tax reform. As you heard in the, sto- in the story in the newscast, it continues the current formula for the mill levy buy down and then adds this thing called a second um, homestead tax credit so that the first $25,000 of the value of your primary residence would be eligible for a state grant to pay that part of your property taxes so it's so it's good relief there the house is considering you know doing it directly through a uh funding education, and you buy down mill levy that way. Uh, could be a nice little uh, conference committee when those two ideas meet. Mm. Now, at the same time, you've got um, a couple more tax bills that are going on. The Senate is considering a tax break for the oil industry. Uh, whether or not it's really a tax break is, is I guess, up to interpretation because What the bill actually does is close some of the loopholes regarding these low producing stripper wells. But when the state reaches a million barrels of production a day for three solid months or twenty eighteen, whichever comes first, then the production tax the oil production tax is lowered by two percent, making the total bill for oil lowered from eleven and a half percent to nine percent, nine and a half percent. Then in the House you've got bills that would cut income taxes, and corporate income taxes. So there's an awful lot being talked about. And Doug, the figure that people are using right now is a billion with a B dollars in tax relief for North Dakota taxpayers. That's a lot of relief. It is a lot of relief. Uh, I
0: noticed uh, there was a a very interesting editorial in the Bismarck Tribune uh, chiding legislators to be wary of uh, giving too many tax breaks to the oil producers. Uh, And it was very interesting logic having to do with the price of oil is the price of oil. That's why they're here. Right. Uh, So I I recommend it to our listeners. There are other issues to be discussed, and we're running out of time. You're you're talking about gun rights uh, discussions out there, aren't you? They're
6: coming up next week. uh, There there are several bills that went through the House Judiciary Committee, and they're going to be on the floor early next week, to deal with uh, gun rights. Not gun control, but gun rights. A couple of gun control issues were briefly introduced in the legislature but were withdrawn. These are gun right bills that the sponsors say will help cement Second Amendment rights in North Dakota. One of the more controversial bills was originally introduced as saying that if you're a sheriff or a police officer or a chief of police or some law enforcement official in North Dakota employed by a city, a county, or the state, well, if they have some new gun regulations from Washington, you can't enforce them. Now, that the bill has been kind of changed a little bit, and it seems to be a little bit more pal- palatable for law enforcement. But this is the kind of situation that North Dakota is seeing itself into. It's looking at what's being happening on the national level, some of the discussions about gun control. And the state's going to take a proactive, or at least the legislature's going to try to take a proactive stance to cement those Second Amendment rights.
0: Well, it's the sort of thing that happens whenever there's a gun incident. You've got people buying a lot of guns, and you've got the gun control debates heating up, and then the gun rights one heat up right behind it. So mm-hmm. yeah, that, uh, that competition is pretty keen. It sure is. I noticed that the uh, North Dakota House today passed a measure that would require a warrant to use unmanned planes, drones, for surveillance.
6: that's an interesting bill because there was a lot of debate in the House about it. It was Representative Rick Becker of Bismarck who introduced the bill saying that if you're law enforcement and you want to spy on somebody's or want to have surveillance on somebody's personal residence, you have to have a warrant to do so. Well, law enforcement was not happy with the bill the way it was written because they're using drones to gather evidence, to charge somebody with a crime. And they say the drones are gathering evidence to go for a search warrant so you can go inside a house or go inside a backyard. So there was a long discussion about whether or not this bill was premature because they've just started using drones in a couple of places, and there was only one incident in North Dakota, I think it was in Trail County. Mm If I remember, or I take that back, it was Ramsey County. Yeah, it was a
0: fugitive issue.
6: It was a fugitive issue. So the argument came down to why are we doing this now and if you put this in place now you might be telling the federal government that north dakota is not welcoming of for these uavs these drones when und right now is applying to become one of the research center for drones it's a it's a very interesting very complicated issue there was a lot of spirited debate in the house this morning and uh I guess uh, the freedom
0: not to wear a seat belt has been endorsed by the North Dakota House. Uh, they yep. killed a bill yesterday. That, it
6: was fifty forty four.
0: Yeah, and, and that would make that would have made it a primary offense, so you could stop somebody for not wearing a belt. That the current law is a secondary offense,
6: right? But the current law does say you have to be buckled up. So if you are stopped for speeding or if you've got a tail light out, then the officer can cite you for not wearing your safety belt. So some of this argument that that some of the opponents were using seems to be about the whole issue about whether or not you need to wear your safety belt. Well, that, that's that been settled. But in terms of the primary enforcement thing, well, there's a, that's, a, that's an interesting discussion.
0: Well, if you're not going to wear your belt, drive very carefully and according to the law, apparently.
6: I guess that's right. Okay. Uh,
0: you know, a, a few weeks back, we got a very uh, optimistic uh, flood prediction from the National Weather Service. Uh, that's changed a bit. Uh, the recent snows uh, here and there and everywhere... Uh, have boosted spring flooding uh, chances in the Red River Valley and, and around Minot, too, I think.
6: The Red River Valley, the Souris River Valley, basically in south-central North Dakota, not as much because we haven't had as much snow in south-central North Dakota. But it's interesting talking to the Fargo people who have been through this flood fight. We're talking about city officials who have been, you know, involved in the flood fight. They said, well, okay, we're talking major flood is 30 feet. They said Fargo right now is protected 38 feet, yeah, so, so th- even they don't really kind of worry about yeah. 38 feet.
0: Yeah, and Moorhead is, is to 42, I think. I think so, that's right. Uh, we, we almost have to redefine what a major flood is in right. the city. Uh, the Forum had a very interesting editorial today. I mentioned the Bismarck Tribunes. It uh, had to do with early childhood education in the state. gets great results, but uh, uh, even if... Head Start and other pre-kindergarten things get mixed results in other states, but they're concerned that uh, the majority membership of the Senate Appropriations Committee voted a do-not-pass recommendation for early childhood education funding.
6: And what was interesting of that vote, it was not completely party-line. Yes, most of the Republicans did vote against it. Their argument is let's put the money into child care because there's a real clamor for uh, daycare centers. In, especially in the oil patch. And they're also saying they're worried about, uh, you know, letting a kid be a kid. And you're talking about pre-K education They're They're saying a kid it cannot be a kid. Well, the minority in the committee is saying, hey, these statistics do not lie. You get people into pre-K programs, and they're prepared to go to kindergarten or they're prepared to go to first grade and they become better learners because their mind is expanding. So that's, that's the argument. That's the clash that is going to happen on the Senate floor.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, another child welfare-related issue takes us to the Spirit Lake uh, Reservation where there have been some very serious issues that have been brought to light. Now, it turns out that uh, Chuck Hager, reporting for the Grand Forks-Herald, says that a meeting of senior Bureau of Indian Affairs officials and leaders of the tribe to assess progress in dealing with child protection issues has been scheduled for Wednesday next week, but it's not clear how public that discussion will be.
6: It's very interesting. We understand that uh, Senator Hoven's office is trying to get that open to the public, but there are some in the Bureau of Indian Affairs who are saying, well, this should be just a uh, discussion among you know tribal officials and the public doesn't need to be there. Well, it's kind of interesting because there there's been a lot of concern about Spirit Lake and some of the child care issues and and some of the things that apparently have happened. And of course, the tribes the tribe has uh, thrown up its hands and said, "Okay, BIA, it's yours." So I think that's where the interesting discussion is going to be. And is it going to be an open meeting? Well, we're kind of hoping it's going to be an open meeting and have an open discussion and get people in there who have been impacted by the problems with the child care.
0: Well, we look forward to finding out what happens with it and uh, hearing how the meeting uh, meeting progresses. In the Dickinson Press, this caught my eye today. Uh, We've obviously been talking a lot about the Bakken uh, oil shale formation in western North Dakota, but... uh, it turns out there are a couple of other formations that are starting to get more attention, the Three Forks and Red River formations.
6: Mm-hmm. Three Forks we have known about, but the Red River is kind of an odd formation.
0: And let's be clear, it's not where we are. No, it's <laughs> where not where I am, I should say. No,
6: it's not. <laughs> but there is that one and I believe that I believe that's Golden Valley County. Yes, it is. And uh, there's also some indication that in Bodono County there are there there is going to be a potential to pump oil out of a formation that's there, too. Wow. So there are other formations, and in terms of the Bakken and 3 Forks, we haven't yet discovered how much is possible to pump out. As we keep saying, the horizontal drilling, the fracking, the putting in in oil wells has increased the opportunity to get the oil out of these wells. And how much is going to be recoverable? Well, part of that is the function of the fact that the technology keeps improving. I think that's going to be very interesting.
0: Well, meanwhile in Minnesota, they're having quite a uh, to do about frac sand. Yeah,
6: I saw that.
0: Um, uh, because it's mined uh, near the Mississippi River and uh some there are people some are concerned want a about it.
6: moratorium on that, yeah. uh, that I understand. And there are uh the people who are doing the mining saying, "What are we talking about here? This is not a this is not a big issue, but of course, Fracking is a big and kind of controversial issue, especially in places like the Marcellus shale out in Pennsylvania.
0: Well, now let's talk a little infrastructure because I I remember the Williston bypass and uh, right uh, I think they've uh, or,
6: or as they like to call it truck reliever route.
0: The, well, that's it, and 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 now uh, you reminded me today that Watford City has
6: one. Watford City, yeah, one is being constructed there, and there's one I think around Alexander. There's going to be one around Dickinson too. Yeah, the one as that a, caught my eye
0: was the one at Dickinson today.
6: Yes. Uh, that there's going to be there are plans to get the truck traffic out of downtown Dickinson and that's what they're trying to do is get some of this heavy truck traffic around the city because trucks being the way they are you know that there's a traffic congestion in these cities like Dickinson and let's go back about 10 years a uh, driving through Dickinson was a nice little drive but now with the amount of truck traffic in town there's a, lot of, there's a lot of concern about congestion.
0: Well, the one in Dickinson would be the northwest side of the city connecting North Dakota Highway 22 and Interstate 94. Mm-hmm. And people have a few more weeks to comment. I suspect there'll be some comments.
6: I think you're probably right.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Dave.
6: You're very welcome, Doug.
0: It's always a pleasure to talk with our news director for Prairie Public. Dave Thompson joins us from our studio in Bismarck. And in a moment, we go to the movies with Matt O'Lean. <music>
3: I'm Bill Law, host of Prairie Public's The Law of Jazz. Each week, the show features the best of classic and contemporary jazz, from classic swing to today's top artists. Join me each Saturday at 8 p.m. for The Law of Jazz, here on Prairie Public.
0: It's Friday. It's time to go to the movies with Matt O'Lean, our resident film critic, and uh,
3: you like Amour. Love it. Uh, probably barely my second film, top film of the year, just barely behind The Master, which I think is a transformative film that's going to be remembered forever, but isn't getting a lot of Academy love. Amour is uh, uh, Michael Haneke's new film. He did uh, The White Ribbon and uh, Funny Games. And this is maybe the most unflinching portrait I've ever seen Doug of old age. And mm. this isn't like a bucket list, ooh, let's we're gonna die. Let's have a funny bucket list, uh comedy type film. Oh no no, this is harsh. It is it makes you watch it. Uh Emmanuel Riva, veteran French actress, uh plays a retired piano teacher. Uh, very much in love with her husband, played by French film legend, Jean-Louis Trintignant. You'll probably remember him, Doug, mm-hmm. from A Man and a Woman, and The Conformist and Z back in the day. And they give phenomenal performances, but she uh, has a stroke. And he starts to care for her, and he's out of his depth caring for her. And there are some really, really hard-to-watch scenes as he tries to care for her that I won't reveal. Haneke directs Doug in a manner of letting the action happen in front of the camera. You don't see a lot of cutting within his scenes. You'll see sometimes a shot held for two minutes of just her trying to get out of a bathtub and him trying to help her. So he loves we actors. We don't cut to close-ups a lot. He loves actors. He lets them do it. And uh, that's, a, that's a style that John Ford used to use a lot, too. John Ford would let a, let a scene just play out in front of it sometimes. But he knew when to go to the close-up. He knew when— when it was time to just show the wide shot and when to go, go with the close-up. And Haneke really has that gift as well. Well, I've read several reviews. I have not seen the film yet, but the reviews have a phrase in common, love is hard. It is hard, especially at the end. And I remember after the film I said to someone I went with, it's, it, when he cares for her, it's like taking care of a baby except with a baby, we know they're going to grow. We know they're going to stop crying at some point. It's a joyous time. There's no joyous time here because he knows what the end game is. He knows what the end is here. He's going to lose his wife eventually. Isabelle Huppert plays their daughter, who really is treated almost like a third wheel by the parents. Uh, It's a very interesting, odd relationship. You really wonder what the backstory is there, where Trenton kind of tells her at some point, just let us handle this. Let us handle this. She's like, and she's suggesting mom needs to go in a home, and uh, that's an interesting scene as well. There's some gut wrenching scenes, but the the performances are phenomenal. I really wish Trenton Yant would have got an Oscar nomination because really the film is seen through his eyes. But Best Actor is so competitive this year, Doug. It's hard to know who to throw out. That being said, Emmanuel Riva, who who probably really film aficionados will remember her from Hiroshima Monomore back in 1960. That was a big French film. She was in Blue, one of the three red-blue-white films from Christoph Kozlowski in the 90s. But she's basically retired, but she's in great shape. She's 85 years old, and she, I think, could win the Oscar, Doug. We'll get into that in a minute. But this is a phenomenal film. I want people to understand it's at the Fargo Theater. It's not an easy film to watch. You have to really concentrate on some of the scenes, but it's worth it. It's a uh, it's a film that Hollywood probably would have mucked up. Mm-hmm. If, if, I, if Hollywood would have tackled this aging thing, it, it, they would have mucked it up. And I'm not trying to put down a film like The Bucket List, but it's a whole different film from something like that. And Hollywood would have would have probably put a little too nice of a sparkle on it when there's really not a lot of nice sparkles to put on this relationship. Phenomenal picture, and it's going to win the foreign language film for sure. Well, let's move on yep. to
0: your Oscar picks. I mean, there is a bit of a trivia notice from uh, Amour
3: because the yeah. female lead is the oldest nominated actor ever, ever. she would, uh, she would If she wins, she'll be 86 Sunday, Doug. If she wins, she would break a record only held by one year by Christopher Plummer, who was 82 (laughs) last year when he won. He doesn't look 82. He looks phenomenal. Uh, She is planning to come to the awards in L.A. A long flight for her, but she's coming. And I think she's going to win, Doug. I think she, she won the BAFTA, the British Award, last week. She won the National Society of Film Critics. I think the momentum has shifted to her and away from Jennifer Lawrence. You can never overestimate, Doug, what older Academy voters think of this performance. And I think they have a moment on stage that could be great if she wins. And Jennifer Lawrence is great in Silver Linings Playbook. She's a two-time nominee, but she's also the Hunger Games actress. And I don't have anything against the Hunger Games. My son loves the books. He loved the movie. But an older Academy voter may look at her as the Hunger Games actress. And there's a stigma that comes with that to a voter uh, who might be over the age of 65 voting in the Academy. And I think, I think Riva is going to pull off an upset very similar to Marion Cotillard's upset five years ago when she kind of stole the momentum from Julie Christie, who was thought to be the winner for Away From Her. So Actress is—what what I love this year, Doug, is we got three races that are too close to call. Mm-hmm. Actress, for a while they thought Jessica Chastain was the front runner for Zero Dark— Naomi Watts was a front runner for a while for The Impossible. She's great in that, but I think Reva's going to pull off the upset. Supporting actor Doug, completely up for grabs. You have five former winners nominated. The early betting line said Tommy Lee Jones for Lincoln. I think Philip Hoffman should win for The Master, but I don't think he's going to. And I think now my sources, my hunches, my (laughs) longtime hunches, what I was put on this earth to do, Doug, is predict Oscar races. I said that the other day to a friend of mine. It's what I was put on this earth to do. My hunches now tell me that Robert De Niro is the sentimental choice. Really, Returning from 20 years of taking paychecks and stuff like Meet the Fockers, we see a little of the old De Niro here in his uh, OCD performance in Silver Linings Playbook. It would be his third Oscar and uh, would be a great moment. And then you've got director. Ben Affleck's not nominated for Argo. Argo is now the, the, the front runner for Best Picture. Mm. But there's no Affleck in the directing thing. The director's branch has egg on their face. And I think it's going to feel like a consolation prize with the five people nominated, even though they're all great. I think Ang Lee's going to pull off a really? mild upset Life of Pi. for Life of Pi over Spielberg for Lincoln. Because I think what he did is he filmed an unfilmable book. Mm. And he cast an unknown actor with a tiger. And it's basically shot on a raft, and he pulls it off. And I think that would be a great win for Ang Lee. It would be his second Oscar. Uh, the other awards are pretty much Daniel Day-Lewis. Forget it. He's going he's to be the first man to win three lead actor Oscars, and Anne Hathaway is going to win supporting actress for Les Mis. But look at actress, supporting actor, and director – Any one of two to three people could win in those categories. We could be looking at a tie in one of those two, Doug. It's so close. And you're picking Argo for the film? I'm picking Argo for film. I don't think it's a clear-cut. Favorite. It's a good film, but I think it's got the momentum, and I think there's a sympathy vote for Argo because Affleck was snubbed in directing. Okay, now I okay. have a trivia question <laughs> for
0: Madeline, and it's based on
3: the Oscars. Some may
0: wonder why Helen Hunt is the, in the supporting category uh-huh. rather than lead for the sessions. The Academy allows submissions to be determined by the artist with yep. no apparent restriction as to screen time. Right. What is the shortest duration of a performance to win a lead acting Oscar? Anthony Hopkins, Silence of the Lambs. That's close. He was on screen about 16 minutes. David Niven in separate tables was on wow. screen for 15 minutes, 38 seconds. You missed by 22 seconds.
3: Yeah <laughs> See, I've seen that question before, and they've always said Hopkins, but I guess I missed by 20 seconds. Now, in the supporting Doug, Beatrice Straight in Network, I think, was on screen for like four minutes, and Anthony Quinn in Lust for Life was on screen with Kirk Douglas maybe seven minutes. So it's you don't, you don't have to be on a long time. All right, enjoy the Oscars. Matt certainly will, (laughs) and we'll be back in a moment. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them.
7: This is Dakota Datebook for February 22nd. The gaslight era in Grand Forks began in 1887 when the city's homes and businesses were lit with gas for the first time. Before gas lights, homeowners depended upon candles, whale oil lamps, or kerosene lanterns. Gas pipes brought the illuminating gas to homes, where smaller gas lines conducted the fuel directly to the gas lights in the various rooms. The gas itself was made from coal, produced at the local gas works. On this date in 1891, an article in the Grand Forks Herald made mention of an accident at the Grand Forks Gas and Electric Company's Gas Works. What was a gasworks? The whole process may seem obscure to modern-day minds and requires an explanation. The illuminating gas in Grand Forks was produced from soft coal. The gas company broke up the coal into small fragments and put them into fireproof containers called retorts. Furnaces heated the coal in the retorts until it was red-hot and a yellowish smoke or gas then came out of the coal, escaping through a pipe. The large pipe from the retort carried off the products from the red-hot coal, consisting of steam, tar, air, and ammonia, as well as gas. The ammonia and the tar went into tanks, and the gas went into coolers, then over lime to take out any sulfur, rotten egg smell, then to an immense gas-holder storage building. The storage buildings were cylindrical, made of heavy iron or steel that expanded upward as it filled with gas, a distinctive and conspicuous feature at the gas works. Gas mains, which were cast iron pipes, conducted the illuminating gas under the city streets to streetlights and to the houses. The pressure was provided by the weight of the iron gas holders, which were always bearing down upon the gas they contained. Gas pipes in the houses brought the gas directly to the light fixtures. The gas could also be used for heating and cooking. The Grand Forks Gas Company later added an electric generating plant to its holdings. And so, gas lights replaced kerosene lanterns just as kerosene lamps had replaced candles. And after Thomas Edison perfected his light bulbs, so too gas lights were replaced by electric lights in the 20th century. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Dr. Steve Hoffbeck. I'm Meryl Pepcorn.
1: Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council.
0: You know, I was reminded when I read the gas lights story that uh, Meryl just shared with you that I had read an exhaustive biography of Thomas Alva Edison uh, over my break, and uh, that talks about of course his perfection of the light bulb uh, at least at that time so that it would provide illumination and that was in 1879 when he did that and when this gas plant opened in Grand Forks or when they started gas lighting the electric light bulb was actually available in lots of places in the United States so i'm kind of wondering how long they had cast lights in Grand Forks well on monday those spring gardening catalogs have started to arrive and Planning is beginning for the upcoming gardening season. So we've got a retired NDSU Extension horticulturist, Ron Smith, who knows all about this stuff, to take your lawn and garden questions Monday on Hear It Now. In the meantime, have a great
4: weekend.